Exodus chapter 9. Uh, we're going to continue our examination of the ten plagues. We're going to see, yeah, hopefully it's not biting off more than we can chew, but I'd like to look at two plagues this evening, two that, uh, that are shorter plague accounts that I think we can combine together. Uh, and we'll look at the first, Lord willing, the first 12 verses of Exodus chapter 9. And then uh, after that, the next two plagues are actually the two longest plague accounts up till now, uh, 7th and 8th, the, the record of those. And so we'll look at those in due time. But our focus this evening will be Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. And we're going to look at the fifth and sixth plagues, the plagues uh, on the cattle and the boils. All right. And so we'll read this passage in just a moment. And uh, we'll, then we'll take them one at a time. We'll look at uh, the fifth plague and then the sixth in, in succession. So if you've got your Bible, let's actually begin by reading the first seven verses, which is the fifth plague. And we'll begin there. And then we'll, uh, we'll see if we uh, can jump into the sixth for a second time. But let's look at verse 1. Exodus 9 verse 1 says, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, and will hold them still, behold, the, land, the hand of the Lord is upon your cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, and upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous uh, murian or pestilence. Murian's an old word, means pestilence, plague of some sort. Verse 4, And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel's, or the children of Israel. Verse 5, And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Pause there. Now, so as we look at these first seven verses of the chapter, really simple thought flow. We'll look, uh, verses 1 to 5 is essentially the prologue to the plague itself, which is recorded in verses 6 and 7. But the prologue, you know, has uh, just the simple acknowledgement of this audience that Moses and Aaron have before Pharaoh, once again in verse 1. The announcement of the coming plague, which is verse 1 to verse 4. And then, of course, the appointed time uh, highlighted in verse 5. And then the plague itself falls in verse 6 and 7. So it's a real simple uh, thought flow. It's one of the shorter accounts in the plague narratives. It's kind of quick and to the point. But let's walk through it uh, and see make some basic observations. Then we'll, again, if time allows, we'll, we'll get to uh, the sixth plague. And then we'll see how when we get to this point, one of the, the major uh, things being highlighted is the hard heart of Pharaoh. It's, that concept that has come up several times is here going to be uh, reiterated, kind of recapped in uh, some graphic ways. And so we'll see that as we work our way through. So again, notice, recall this briefly. We've already talked about this, but verse one tells us that the Lord says to Moses, go in unto Pharaoh. Now this idea of going in unto Pharaoh is, again, it was pretty common in the ancient Near East. The idea of the custom of majlis or majlis, however you say that, uh, or the idea is open court. The concept that, and this has survived even to modern times in certain countries that still have monarchies, uh, particularly, uh, you know, Eastern countries or Middle Eastern countries. But the idea is that even the most common citizen can still have access 
to the pharaoh or the king, the monarch, at some point in time. It might be scheduled out a ways, but nonetheless, they have access. Uh, so we see that this is granted, but though this, this custom uh, has been afforded, and, and we can see it throughout history, we can see it throughout biblical history, it's, it's very possible that by this point, uh, in light of the pressures placed on Egypt and Pharaoh by the plagues, that there may have been a standing order. Uh, in other words, that whenever Moses and Aaron wanted access to Pharaoh, they could have it. We're going to see in the next few plagues, I, I foreshadowed this, but this idea of not only entrance into Pharaoh's presence, the, the audience that uh, Moses and Aaron seek, but also we'll see this interplay between Pharaoh calling for them and then running them off, and then even them later you know, making an announcement and stomping out. I mean, in other words, as we read this, sometimes we're not sensitive to it because we're modern Westerners, right? But when you think about the, the court protocols that would have been common in this time and place, it's interesting to watch as that devolves a little bit. In other words, as tensions rise and as you know, attitudes get uh, more intense and, and we see the, the anger of Pharaoh lashing out a few different times, we see even Moses and Aaron getting pretty short with Pharaoh. And it's, 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 that in and of itself is, what, is fascinating to watch. And again, it's, it's a little bit foreign to us because we're less familiar with the court protocol. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'll try to point that out as we go because it, 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 it adds drama to the story. But nonetheless, they have this access and they go in and they make their announcement. The end of verse 1 down to verse 4 is the announcement itself. And once again, I, I think it's worthy of note that the, the phraseology, particularly the end of verse 1, points out that the plagues here are literally a battle between God and Pharaoh. The question is, who owns the people? Notice again, the end of verse 1, they go in, they say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Right? We've made that comment before, but the idea of the service, who owns the, the Hebrews? Who, whom do they serve? And that is, in a, in a sense, the, one of the major subplots of, of the Exodus narrative. And so they show up and they say, Thus says the Lord God, Let my people go that they may serve me. Well, then, verse 2, Moses makes it very clear that it is Pharaoh that is holding back Israel from leaving Egypt. It's Pharaoh's hard heart that is the primary obstacle. He says in verse 2, For if you refuse to let them go and will hold them still, behold, the, land, the hand of the Lord is upon you. But he, he is, again, highlighting that it's Pharaoh that's the, the main obstacle here. And we'll, we'll see... Uh, an interesting play on words in just a second. But he says, you're the one that's holding them from letting them go. And he says, and if you hold them, verse three, behold, the land, or excuse me, the hand of the Lord is upon your cattle. Now, the, the point is, because of Pharaoh's hard heart, consequences are going to fall upon him and Egypt. And in verse three, he highlights that in particular, the hand of the Lord will be upon the cattle. Now, this is actually the first use of the phrase, the hand of Yahweh, in the plague narrative proper. Now, it was predicted back in chapter 3. God predicted that his hand would be heavy upon Pharaoh, but this is actually the first time it appears in the plague narrative itself, that the hand of God is at work. And many scholars uh, will, will point out the fact that this is probably an upgrade in the intensity. 
In other words, last time, if you were with us, we talked about the finger of God back in chapter 8, verse 19. You recall that? The magicians admitted that this is the finger of God. Uh, And there may be significance to the fact that the finger of God has just been upgraded to the hand of God that is now, you know, laying heavy upon them. Uh, But regardless of whether or not you see intensity in that, we do see the intensity of the the plague in the target itself, namely the cattle. But before we mention that, don't forget, and this has been a while since we talked about it because we didn't talk about it since, I think, chapter 3. But recall that in ancient Egypt, we have a number of Egyptian texts that highlight this idea. Uh, but Pharaoh's power is often referred to in Egyptian texts as a strong hand or a mighty hand. Right? In other words, the hand of Pharaoh is, is renowned throughout Egyptology. Uh, because, and, and in fact, if you study Egyptian art... You see this a lot as well. I didn't, I should have included a picture of it, but you have pictures of some of the famous pharaohs, Ramses and whatever. When, whenever they have uh, these conquered foes, they'll often line, up, line them up and the, and the hand of Pharaoh will be over them, either in the sense of like subduing them, sometimes his hand or sometimes he'll put them under his feet, right? And it's etched into the stone. And the idea is that his power, he's subjugating them. Right? He's, he's over them. And so the hand of Pharaoh was a common idiom used throughout Egyptian culture to describe his power. So, so that may not merely communicate intensity, but even, again, a polemic. When it, when it says that God's or Yahweh's hand is going to be upon Pharaoh, the idea is that he's going to humiliate Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But the intensity of plague is not only seen by the fact that his hand is upon uh, you know, Pharaoh and, and Egypt, but particularly the target of the plague is mentioned in verse 3. He says, The hand of the Lord will be upon your cattle, which is in the field. We'll come back to that in the field statement. But he says, The cattle which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep, there will be this pestilence. Now again, this the target of the plague is worthy of note. The fact that the animals that are being struck in this plague were of incredible value in Egyptian culture and society, both economically as well as religiously. They were very significant. Uh, In fact, this is true not only of ancient Egypt, but many historians make uh, this observation that before the Industrial Revolution, animal livestock was one of the primary means of measuring wealth. Uh, because the reason is pretty obvious, but these animals provided food, milk, clothing, transportation, means of work, right? Plowing, etc., carrying burdens, beasts of burden. You can go on and on. But the point is, even by biblical standards, we see this, for instance, in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the patriarchs of the book of Genesis. They are known for being very wealthy, but their wealth is primarily measured in livestock. And so the fact that the livestock is going to be attacked is it's a major source of Egyptian wealth. It's going to be a cornerstone to their economy that's now going to be attacked. But again, not only is there economic value, there's also religious value. The ancient Egyptians gave great veneration to animals. Uh, they were often regarded as holy or sacred beings, or at least the incarnation of sacred beings, depending on the case. Now, again... It's interesting that uh, many of the animals in ancient Egypt were revered or venerated, but in particular was uh, the bull. And it's, it's, uh, the bull was a symbol of, of power and potency, fertility, strength, 
all of those ideas were often associated with it. We're going to make a bigger deal of that when we get to the golden calf incident, right? Because uh, it's very possible. Many scholars, it's, it's conjecture, but it, it's a pretty, I don't know, strong consensus among scholars that the golden calf that they make at the foot of Mount Sinai was in fact a, uh, you know, a, an attempt at either the Apis bull or Hathor, or one of the Averis Egyptian gods. It was actually a flashback to their days of worshiping, you know, the Egyptian gods, which were just days before, <laughs> not long before that incident. But nonetheless, uh, there's many scholars point this out. Kaiser, for instance, highlights how Egypt's wide array of gods was being hard hit in this plague. For instance, the Apis bull, right, uh, which I just mentioned, he was, this is one of the more famous Egyptian gods supposedly conceived when a flash of sunlight came down from heaven and impregnated a cow. There's some Egyptian mythology that you probably didn't need to know, but <laughs> you're welcome. But anyways, uh, we have the sacred bull, Ptah is another famous Egyptian uh, bull, the calf god, Ra, the cows of Hathor, that was actually a goddess. Hath Hathor was a, a female goddess. The jackal-headed god, Anubis, uh, the bull Bacchus and the god Mentu. These are just a, a few examples of just a plethora of gods that were associated with animals of various kinds, but bulls being one of the primary uh, you know, uh, personifications or, or animals venerated in worship of the gods. So, so again, the fact that God is now targeting, notice again, we've mentioned this many times, but the intensity of the plagues is growing. He's upping not only you know, the, the intensity, but now the, the target itself is going to hit Egypt even harder. And so Egyptian livelihood is now being attacked. We're going to see their economy is going to be in shambles after the plagues, but this is a major step in that direction. So after he highlights in verse 3 the, the target of the plagues, he says, verse 4, that the Lord will sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. So notice once again there's, that there's a distinction here. We, we made this, we make a, made a bigger deal of this uh, just last week when that is, is highlighted, uh, particularly verse 23, it's really highlighted in the fourth plague where we see this idea that God can supernaturally not only level a plague upon Egypt, but he can also single out and protect the, the Hebrews from that very plague. And so again, he's going to make this distinction between e Egypt and Israel. Now, for Egypt to lose livestock would constitute a serious blow indeed, but for them to have lost livestock while the Israelites retained all of theirs represented a nationwide humiliation. In other words, we're going to see, uh, and I, again, I'm working ahead in my, in my notes, um, but this is one example of what will happen back you know, later in chapter 11 and 12 with the spoiling of Egypt. The spoiling of Egypt by the Hebrews is, is a profound event that has lots of you know, significance to it. But not only are they going to take much of the wealth of Egypt, but here and other, some of these other plagues that we're going to see in the next few plagues, part of the, the spoiling of Egypt is actually the fact that the Egyptian wealth is going to be destroyed while Israel retains her wealth. Does that make sense? In other words, this is part of that process of the spoiling uh, of the Egyptians and the humiliating of the Egyptians. So God makes it clear, verse 4, that he's going to sever or make a distinction, uh, single out Israel, protect her cattle so that not one of them die. 
But then in verse 5, he also highlights that there's going to be an appointed time, that he, God appoints a time for the plague to begin. Now, recall this actually happened back in the fourth plague in chapter 8, verse 23. We talked about this last time. But God seems to do this for at least two reasons, where he, he picks a point in time. In this case, it'll just be tomorrow. Right? He says, I'm going to do this tomorrow. In other words, it's not immediate, it's not today, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. He gives them you know, a 24-hour warning, if you will. And there's, this is significant for at least two reasons. First, God does this to stress that he's in control, right? That God can flip the switch, if you will, whenever he pleases. That was the whole idea of, you know, getting rid uh, of, of uh, in fact, this, this happened a couple of different times. But back in chapter 8, when God says, well, hey, I'm going to get rid of the frogs, you just tell me, right? He, he, he tells Pharaoh to pick the day. Remember that? He says, you pick the day, and then I'll get rid of the frogs. And the idea is kind of like, you know, the concept of, of giving the responsibility into Pharaoh's hands in order to vindicate the fact that God can do it whenever, right? I mean, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, doesn't matter. God can take care of it. So first it stresses the idea that God is, is in control. And so we see that this is, again, supernatural. God is in control of these events. But secondly, the fact that God appoints a time, he gives a warning, also serves another interesting purpose, namely that this interval between the announcement and the morrow that verse 5 highlights would allow time for a believing response from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Presumably, some believed and attempted to rescue their animals by bringing them in from the fields, as would be in the case in the seventh plague. Now, it's not specifically mentioned here in the fifth plague that anyone responded positively. That will be mentioned in the seventh plague, and we'll get to that you know, uh, probably next week, but in chapter 9, verse 20, that's highlighted for us. But presumably, that was the purpose so whether or not any responded in belief and faith, nonetheless, God did give them an opportunity to do so. All right, so there's the purpose of, of the appointed time. Well, then the narrative goes on with, with very uh, little detail. It simply reports in verse 6 and 7 that the Lord did the thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. In other words, it reports that the plague actually descends. And it's clear that there were plenty of Egyptian livestock still alive. In fact, some uh, scholars will say, well, wait a minute, you know, there's a contradiction here. By saying that, hey, there's the livestock are here being slain in the fifth plague, but then it says that there's still some around to be killed by the hail in chapter 9, uh, or later in chapter 9, verse 19 to 21. And so, but don't, rec don't forget... Uh, back in verse 3, it says that this is going to be upon all the cattle that were in the field. In other words, not all the livestock were going to be killed in this plague, but rather those that were out in the field. There will be some spared to die in the seventh plague. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, he gave them a warning to, uh, you know, to, to uh, put their livestock away. Well, those who didn't listen, right, which is presumably most, if not all, that ignored the warning suffered the loss of their livestock. Well, I think that's interesting because by the time we get to chapter seven, several, or I'm sorry, the seventh plague later in the chapter, it tells us that several did respond saying, well, wait a minute, right? God warned us the first time and he meant it. And so this time we're going to obey. And so they do actually uh, put their livestock away, get them out of the field. And so they're actually saved from the plague of hail. So we'll talk about that in due time. But I do think it's interesting. Verse seven highlights that 
uh, now that so many of the Egyptian cattle had died, representing an economic disaster for the Egyptians, Pharaoh decided to find out for himself whether or not the same sort of thing happened to the Israelites. Right? Verse 7 reports that he decides to send to Israelite territory to see if they had any cattle. And again, I think this is so interesting, but uh, he's, he's wanting to confirm. And he's hoping that, well, maybe, right, if everyone lost cows, right, then maybe this was just a natural disaster, right? Maybe we could explain this away as a natural phenomenon, whatever, but Pharaoh was disappointed. Not a single Israelite animal was missing. And so just like God said, he not only destroyed the cattle of Egypt, but he spared the cattle uh, of the Hebrews. And so once again, God is placing a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And uh, yet, even in spite of this evidence, even in the fact that, hey, God has, everything that God has said would happen has happened. God is absolutely faithful. His word is absolutely true. Nonetheless, it says at the end of verse seven that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So once again, the, the text reports that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He becomes a living manifestation, if you will, of Proverbs 28, verse 14. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity, right? He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And the idea is that he's, he's actually making things worse, right? We're gonna make a bigger deal of that um, next time when in, in the beginning of the seventh plague is there's gonna be this long theological preface that God gives to you know, the, the uh, introduction to the next plague, but it, it highlights, it reiterates what God's been saying from the very beginning. That the purpose of the plagues is to humiliate Egypt and the Egyptian pantheon and to exalt God. And yet, he, God is doing that. He's going he's gonna to get to that end goal through the means of the hard heart of Pharaoh. And it's, it's remarkable to see the sovereign hand of God, how he can take even the, you know, the wicked choices of wicked men to ultimately serve his purpose. Yet on the other hand, when you think about it from the human perspective— had Pharaoh just relented earlier, right? He could have saved so much disaster. But as the Proverbs say, you harden your heart, you're gonna fall into calamity, right? Pride goes before a fall, right? And it's just gonna get worse. Uh, it could have been better, right, if we had repented sooner. But nonetheless, uh, Pharaoh is a, a, just a sterling example of what not to be. So what happens next? Well, um, Stick with me. I think we can look at the sixth plague, and then we're going to back up and notice, we're going to come back to this idea of the hard heart of Pharaoh in just a moment. But let's read verse 8 to verse 12. If you got your Bibles, let's just again, follow along as I read, but let's go from the fifth to the sixth plague. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes from the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and, Mo and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven. And it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Notice again, we're going to uh, come back to this, but this is a significant step forward. And God predicted this, but here we see it said explicitly in verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. 
and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Now, again, as we, as we look at this plague, it's very similar to the last. It's, it's one of the shorter plague accounts in the record. It's, it's just real brief, just a few verses, and it has a very similar layout. Where you see the prologue, right, leading up to the plague uh, itself. Prologue, verse 8 9, the plague recording, the plague actually falling upon the land, verse uh, 10 and 11. And then we're going to see Pharaoh's response in verse 12. All right, but notice again, verse 8 and 9 is, it's interesting that just like uh, the third plague, this one which completes the second cycle was sent unannounced. Don't forget that out of those 10 plagues, remember there's structure built in. There's three groups of three or three triads of plagues and the tenth is the final climactic plague but those those three triads are going to share a similar uh you know rotation similar pattern and in each of those cases when the third one comes along then there it, it just it's leveled unannounced right the first one is pharaoh is warned early in the morning when typically when he's out in about somewhere second uh, in the cycle, they go in unto Pharaoh and they appear before him in court, before the throne of Pharaoh. But the third in the cycle is no warning whatsoever. It's not announced. Pharaoh is just, it's just leveled upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Well, here we see the same pattern being followed. However, for the first time, we now see the lives of humans being attacked and endangered. So again, this not only evidences an, an increase in intensity, but it's foreshadowing the climax. The climax being the 10th and final plague, right? That's going to actually bring the death of the firstborn. And that, that'll be the most climactic, the most devastating of the plagues. But notice again, the increase of intensity. Now it's not merely uh, the animals, but it's animals and men that are being attacked with the boils. Now, when we see the word boils or the term blain in uh, the boils breaking forth with blains in the King James, we're again conjecturing to a, a, a certain extent the type of disease that they're experiencing here. Some commentators contend that it was anthrax. If you study the literature, many will uh, uh, use that term. That perhaps it was a, a form of anthrax. Um, but it, it was an infectious and, uh, in some cases, fatal disease, at least for, you know, anthrax is. And anthrax is characterized by these malignant, uh, you know, elevated blisters or boils, this blane in the King James or uh, postules, or how do you say that word? Pustules. Pustules. Pustules, right? Which means there's lots of pus. Is that? <laughs> right, that's a pleasant thought, Right. Um, it's a, of course, this is Hebrew. When we get to the New Testament Greek, uh, it, you know, it uses a different word. But some will use uh, this. They'll describe how Lazarus in the New Testament, remember the Lazarus, the rich man Lazarus uh, seen in, in Luke chapter 16, where he is plagued by these boils. Or again, another Old Testament example would be uh, Job, right? Who is, who is plagued by these boils. And in some cases, it's described as, as to find relief. They would actually scrape these boils, remember this, with potsherd, like a, you know, a piece of pottery, like a broken piece of pottery, and they would scrape them to get all the pus out. Aren't you so glad you came tonight? Right? <laughs> I mean, just kind of think about that for a second. So the pustules, right? That's a word I have a hard time saying, but think about that. Sores with lots of pus in them. 
but again, they're, they're elevated blister-like sores that would have, again, been, been all over their bodies. Um, and so some argue that it says anthrax. Others will argue that it was smallpox or something similar to that. Much of the vocabulary used in describing this uh, disease, however, was used elsewhere in the Old Testament of leprosy and its consequences. There's similar words that are used in, in Leviticus chapter uh, 13, for instance, to describe the plague of leprosy. So uh, there, there's, again, there's some debate. Was it leprosy? Was it smallpox? Was it anthrax? We don't know for sure. Uh, it was one of those or even none of those. But whatever it was, it was dangerous and even life-threatening uh, to some degree. And so it's interesting that, you know, one commentator, I, I like, uh, once in a while, I appreciate James Montgomery Boyce. And, and, and he has a number of different, uh, it crashed on me. Sorry about that. It'll come back. But Boyce mentions that he, he, he loved to point out the, the irony of this. I'm going to make a bigger deal of it in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. But Egypt was known for its medical advances right, in, in antiquity. Now, you've heard me lecture on this before, perhaps in the past. It's kind of ironic because when we look back and we read what they considered as advanced medical knowledge, you know, it's, it's kind of laughable, right? I mean, like, but because I, I, I make a point in, in chapter 15 where God actually... Pr- promises that if Israel were to be obedient to him, that they will not experience the same diseases that Egyptians experience. And what that might be a reference to is simply the plagues, right? I mean, what they experienced in the 10 plagues. Or it might actually also be referencing the idea of just their common uh, struggles, that they had a regular common you know, struggle with varying diseases. And once when we, from a modern perspective, look back and we read back into their you know, what they actually went, what they did medically. Now it makes a lot more sense why they may have been weirdly diseased. Like they would take dung from various animals and rub it in sores to try and cure infection. (laughs) And you're like, wait a minute, they did that to cure infection? But, but the point is, um, you know, they, it's, it's, it's ironic that as Boyce points out that this, this, these boils that come and they plague the, the Egyptians, it highlights specifically the magicians that can no longer stand before Pharaoh in verse 11. Now, this phrase, I think I alluded to this a couple of weeks back, when it says in verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. This is, you can take it one of two ways or both. You can either take it religiously in the sense that they were ceremonially unclean. Remember that? that in Egyptian religion, they were meticulously clean. The magician, magicians and Egyptian priests would have been just meticulously clean. And so the fact that they had skin, you know, uh, boils all over their skin means that they were considered unclean. They were incapable of fulfilling their duties from a ceremonial or religious perspective. But then you could also read this in a physical sense, that, they, that this was such a debilitating thing, that, that these sores were so pervasive over their body, and there was so much pain that they were now incapable of fulfilling their duties just physically, like they couldn't, you know, carry on throughout the day, if that makes sense. And so, again, you can read that either way or both, but the point is, this is, this is going to be the last reference of the magicians in the plague narrative, right? We saw them earlier in the previous narrative, uh, the previous plague, admitting that they were not able to actually... Uh, you know, reduplicate the plague. And so they said, this is the finger of God. 
And so they've already essentially bowed out in the sense of being defeated foes. But here, we actually see them no longer able to stand before Pharaoh. And this will be the final mention of them in in the narrative, is they're totally defeated. They've been beaten and Yahweh triumphs. And so, however, I want to go back and I want to look briefly at this idea of the ashes. And I want to hear your thoughts on this because I I think there's, there's a number of pieces of significance to this. But it says in verse 8 and verse 10 that God has Moses and Aaron take ashes from a furnace to begin this process. In other words, there, there seems to be some ceremonial significance to this. Um, but you tell me, what, what do you see? Why does God tell them to take ashes from the furnace to throw it up in the air? And you know, then from there forward, the boils will break out. Any thoughts on that? Go ahead. Okay, so think about the furnace. That's a good question. I think because that's that's I think part of the answer is where what what furnace are we talking about? Where has the furnace already showed up in the narrative most likely? Exactly. Probably these are brick furnaces. They're kilns for making brick. All right. So that's that's very probable. Uh, in fact, it's it's yeah. Most, most scholars will say it's undeniable. Like that's, that's probably what the furnaces are. So right there, what's the significance there? The fact that they go to one of the furnaces where they made bricks and they take ash from the furnace. Because that's what they All right, so once again, do you see in the poetic justice going on? So there's some poetic justice going on here that there's, you know, again, don't forget how many times God does this through the plague narrative is he's going to make the Egyptians kind of relive you know, and become victims of what they perpetrated. Which again, don't forget, that's divine justice. It is God's definition of justice is to reverse the crime upon the victim. Uh, and, and that's, in, in a sense, you know, that's, that's the ultimate fulfillment of justice. You got a thought? And I'll come over there. Go ahead. I was thinking too, like a, a foreshadowing back when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and um, Abraham looks back and says the smoke was rising like the furnace or like from a furnace or something when after the destruction. Yeah. So maybe a foreshadowing of um, from ash you come to ash you return, you know, like here's your fate coming. Um, no, that's good. That's good. So a little literary foreshadowing there, if you will. Good. So that, yeah, from the dust you came, the dust you'll return, ash to ashes. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Good. I'm going to build off that in a second. What was your thought? Okay, excellent. So uh, my, my proclaim isn't pulling up. I had a really cool quote for you, and I, but let me give you the gist of it. So you, exactly what Diana just said, this is true in Egyptian religion. One of the things, and again, don't forget, so much of the plague narratives is this way, where we see you know, God is, is purposefully targeting Egyptian culture or religion in some very, you know, again, the word is polemic, in a very polemic way, where it's a religious attack. He's mocking their religion and gods, etc. Well, there's actually a ceremony where the Egyptian priests, again, I think this is interesting because the magicians... The priests are now here defiled. They're no longer able to stand and do their duties. That's why I think it's probably helpful to to view this as both a a physical ailment that they could not fulfill their duties as well as a religious 
thing, that they were incapable of doing it because they were defiled. But one of their uh, uh, religious rites was taking ash, and they would take the ashes of a sacrifice, and they would cast it up into the air, exactly what Moses is told to do. And whatever that fell, you know, as they threw it up in the air, whatever it fell on the worshipers gathered, it was considered a blessing from the gods, right? And, <laughs> right, do you see the irony in that? I mean, I think God's like just kind of laughing about it. I mean, Yahweh God is laughing at this as he's recreating it, but in reverse. And I think I shared this with you before. Um, in in uh, central Utah, like there's that... Uh, uh, Oh, man, I just lost the name of the God. That There's this temple, not, not the Mormon temples. Those are there, too. But there's this, uh, this pagan temple, and it's some God from India. And I'm trying to remember. Thank you. That's it. Hare Krishna. The Hare Krishna temple. Okay. So it's like right, I mean, it's just north of where I grew up in Nephi. Like I just drove by it, and, you know, you see the, anyways, the temple's there. And they have this uh, festival that's very similar to this, even these days. In modern day, they call it, and I think it goes back pretty ancient, but they call it the Festival of Colors. You heard about that? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, okay. And so they actually have these bags of chalk or, or you know, yeah. Yeah, and this colored chalk and you show up and there's this prayer to Hare Krishna on the bag and you show up and, you, you know, you get this bag and then you're supposed to throw it up in the air and then it lands on you, right? And it's supposed to be a blessing from Hare Krishna, right? It's like, oh, what a blessing, all right? But the point is... That is, uh, that's a, it's a modern equivalent. It's still being practiced today, but it, it, that's what they did in antiquity. And this, and this is a, probably a polemic against it. In other words, Yahweh is saying, all right, I'll give you a real blessing, right? Take some ash, throw it up in the air, right? And this time it's going to be boils all over you. Yes. Exactly. So don't miss that. What verse is that? So, okay, so in verse 8, he's supposed to do it in the sight of Pharaoh, right? It says it again, verse 10, they took the ashes of the furnace, they stood before Pharaoh, right? Do, it, do this so that he can see it. In other words, you know, now again, this is without warning, right? So, I mean, it's not like he's giving them the announcement that the plague is coming, but nonetheless, it's still to be in the sight of Pharaoh. He's to show up and say, all right, Pharaoh, which again, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> It's to be public, it's to be polemic, right, against the gods. I mean, Yahweh's designing this to be humiliating, to be painful, you know, to the, to the nation at large, Pharaoh, and the gods of Egypt in particular. All right, but notice, uh, let's come back to verse 12. I've got just a few minutes. Let's camp out on this for just a minute, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up for tonight. But it says that, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Now, here we are. This is the sixth plague. We, we have now made it through the first two triads, okay? And we have here a very significant shift. Recall this, that it will say 10 times through the plague narratives that Moses's hard, you know, describe, or I'm not Moses, Pharaoh's hard heart. It'll describe Pharaoh's hard heart. However, the, the, you remember how evenly divided this is? The first five times it references this, it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Do you remember this? But now we see the, the shift. In other words, if you're you know, tracing this through the narrative, here's the pivot point. By the time we get to the sixth plague in Exodus 9 and verse 12, 
it is now the, the Lord, it is Yahweh God who is beginning to harden the heart of Pharaoh. He's taking the initiative. Let's revisit that concept for just a second, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up for now. We'll be out of time. The hard heart of Pharaoh is important for lots of, you know, reasons. I think, again, don't forget that there's, there's another polemic involved there. Do you remember the whole hard heart of Pharaoh thing that we have in Egyptian mythology, this idea that when Pharaoh dies, he would go and he would stand before the gods and they would weigh his heart. Remember this? They would weigh his heart against a feather. And the idea is that they're, they're testing the truthfulness of his heart. And so if he passes the test, he gets into the afterlife. If he fails the, you know, the test, then this little dog-looking creature would eat up his heart. Uh, and, you know, what's that? Yes, the dog, I forget the name of the dog, but the dog of the underworld would eat his heart and he would, you know, I'm not sure what that meant if he didn't go to the afterlife or he had a really bummer afterlife. I'm not sure which one that meant. (laughs) But either way, this idea of the weighing of the heart, but in Egyptian uh, mythology, that when the pharaohs were mummified, do you remember this? They would put a, I'm pretty sure it was a scarab beetle over the heart of the pharaoh. The reason for that is, according to their mythology, they wanted the, and they used to call it this in their Egyptian text, they wanted to hardened, harden Pharaoh's heart. And the, what they meant was they wanted him to silence, be silent in the afterlife, to not admit to his crimes, to not confess any faults, so that he would pass the test. You remember this? And so there's, there's probably a polemic at work when Yahweh says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But in this case, it's not a good thing, right? He's flipping it on its head. From, from what the Egyptians normally would use that phrase to describe, he's flipping it on its head and he's saying, well, this is a bad thing. But he says Pharaoh's hard heart is actually going to lead to his destruction, not to his deliverance. But nonetheless, we see here a very you know, clear advanced step forward when Yahweh hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And it illustrates a rather profound truth. I have a, a, a list, and every time I find a new passage, I add it to my list. But I've got a list of probably 15 passages throughout the scripture that describe this, where someone who has gone so far in their rebellion against God is now being aided in that direction by God himself. It's like God actually begins to push them over the edge, where they actually are now incapable of repentance. Can you give me some examples? That, yeah, any that come again? I got I'll go back and look at my list. I got about dozen, fifteen, I think, ish passages. Pharaoh's the most famous, right? Um, I, I think of uh, Do you remember Og and Sihon, the two kings of the Amorites, when the Israelites are are hike, you know hiking all around in the wilderness and they're trying to get into the Promised Land, and it says that they would not let Israel pass, but they wanted to come out and fight Israel with their army. It says in that passage in Deuteronomy chapter two that God. Uh, actually stirred them up to this, that he hardened their hearts so that they would come against Israel so that God could defeat them and, you know, exalt Israel. Um, do you remember when Abimelech, the, uh, the son of Gideon? Now that's, again, a lot of irony there. <laughs> if you remember, remember, Gideon was asked at the end of his life if he would become king, and he says, no, 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 I don't want to be king. God's your king but go ahead and pay me taxes and, you know, give me an ephod. And, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm paraphrasing, but he's, he, he actually, he says he doesn't want to be king, but he kind of acts like a king in some ways. But what's interesting is he, his son is named Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? 
Does anyone remember? It's a Hebrew phrase. Abimelech's his name, but it means my father is king. Okay? <laughs> so, I mean, it's like real subtle there, Gideon. All right? I mean, I'm not king. All right. What's your firstborn son's name? Abimelech. Right? But it, the point is, I mean, it's, there's some, uh, you know, stuff going on in that narrative. But Abimelech tries to become king. You remember this? And he hijacks a town. But he's a wicked dude. And so it, it actually tells us in that, in that passage that God stirs up the hearts of the men of Israel against Abimelech. And it's really, you know, again, it's profound. We, we could go to, a, again, a dozen different narratives where we see the rebellion and wickedness of an individual that they bring upon themselves, right? Like the first, you know, five times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But then at some point it says that, that God actually begins to work against them in the sense of actively, in this sense, hardening the heart of Pharaoh or pushing them over the edge. Right, we see it in the New Testament, I quote it often, but John 12, they who would not believe Jesus and his mighty miracles, it says in the next couple of verses later, they could not believe. They were now incapable of belief because they went so far in their rebellion. Romans 1 is another passage where in Romans chapter 1, God's talking about a whole culture, a pagan culture that is wicked against God. And so it says God gave them up and gave them over to a greater de- degree of depravity. And then he does that three times. He gives them up, gives them up, gives them up. And then the final you know, description is that they have a reprobate mind. And the term reprobate mind, there's some discussion on that. You know, scholars, theologians are like, well, what exactly is a reprobate mind? The word reprobate, the Greek word, uh, is actually, uh, it's a dokimazo. It means to not pass the test. And some will think, some translate that with the term unreasonable. In other words, they are now incapable of reason. They're incapable of actually understanding and thinking correctly, uh, which is a powerful idea. That's a powerful, you know, if you translate the word that way, that's a powerful idea because it, you know, helps make me, it helps me anyways, make sense of the modern world, right? How otherwise seemingly intelligent people can be so stupid, right? Exactly. It's like when it comes to moral reasoning, Right, right, wrong, consequences of actions and choices. It's like, wow, how did you get there? And how do you not see this? But it's probably evidence of a reprobate mind. And so the idea is that they, you know, one way to translate that word is the idea of, you know, unreasonable. They're incapable of reason. Or the other way, again, is, is they didn't pass the test. They failed the test. They're so crooked and perverse, the idea, is that they're, again, in, incapable of doing right. And so that, uh, that idea is really profound. And Romans 1 makes that, you know, uh, description of entire culture. But here, Pharaoh is illustrating it on the individual level of, of how we can go so far in our sin and our rebellion against God that we're now incapable of return. Yes? Is it Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. So it doesn't use these exact, fr- which is why, by the way, Saul, King Saul, there's a huge debate, you know, surrounding Saul. Like, we're, are we going to see him in heaven or not? Right? Like, when we get to heaven, it's like, is King Saul going to be there? I don't know. Because there, there's so much, you know. I mean, he killed priests. Exactly. He, was, he went very far in his rebellion. The, the one big thing that people will say... Uh, in his favor 
is in 1 Samuel 9. It describes how when the Spirit of God comes upon him and he receives that, that theocratic anointing, we call it, it says that God gave him a, uh, a new heart or a different heart. And so some will say, boom, that's conversion. Like, that, like he was legitimately, legitimately saved. It's possible. Um, others will just look at that and describe it differently in the sense of a theocratic anointing, that it gave him courage, it gave him strength, it gave him a better IQ, but it's not necessarily talking about salvation. Um, so, so there's debate on that. But when you get in and you watch his life you know, flesh out, then, oh man, yeah, he went very far in his rebellion to the point that he was unreasonable, right? I mean, he was making self-destructive decisions, not just for him, but for his nation, his family, right? I mean, it was, and then, of course, the priests, you know, the, as he closed priests and the whole priesthood. And so, yeah, I mean, he's, a, I think, a good example. Whether or not he's a believer or not, we can debate, and we'll see one day. But I think he's a good example of how, yeah, far you can go in your sin and your rebellion, where you're now, I mean, you're morally, ethically twisted and contorted, and you're... A reprobate mind, right? I mean, it's like you're, you're now incapable of reason and you're making self-destructive choices. Yeah? So getting back to that sixth plague, it doesn't really say, but do you think that just struck the Egyptians or do you think it struck the Hebrews as well? It did not. Yeah, so it doesn't say it explicitly other than it says that it was a verse 11. It says, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. In other words, it wasn't upon Israel. But you're right, it doesn't specifically say, like it did in the previous two, that God would sever them out. But that seems to be the implication. It follows through the rest of the plague. They don't hit Israel at all. And that's and that, correct. It's exactly what Simone said. When you look at the full pattern, you back up and look at the pattern from, uh, from the, what is it, the fourth plague on, they, they are singled out. In other words, it seems, because it's specifically said several times, but you're right, it doesn't specifically say it in the sixth plague, but because it says only the Egyptians were impacted, it's, it's assumed that the Israelites were also you know, severed out or spared in that plague as well. <laughs> yes. Now, can we assume also that Pharaoh was affected by the boils? Oh yeah. Because I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he the magicians can't or ceremonial clean, but he's considered at least a demigod covered in boils. That's right. Oh exactly and that's a <laughs> that's a good thought. When you think about I mean, you're seeing not only the weaknesses of the Egyptian pantheon, but the incarnation of Ra himself, right? Sitting right there on that throne. Right. Pharaoh, you're starting to see his weaknesses, right? Absolutely, because I think, I mean, the whole, uh, it says, Elena pointed this out in verse 10, that they had to do this standing before Pharaoh, you know? So, I mean, it's like, I'm sure some of the ash fell on Pharaoh, you know? <laughs> in other words, this is going to get, you know, it, it's going to get uncomfortable for him as well. Yes, and then we'll come over. Yeah. I had a, a question and a thought. And Moses and Aaron had pretty open access to the court and to Pharaoh. Why was that? Was it because of his upbringing in the palace? Or was there some other reason why, or this exchange he was having, you know, with Yahweh and Pharaoh, mm -hmm. that he had such open access? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think some will say it goes back to his upbringing, um, but, and that's possible, uh, I think, or they'll anchor it to that majilis or however you say that word, that uh, ancient court protocol that even the common citizen could have access to the king. Uh, so that, I think that could be at play. But I think at, you know, at this point, it's the fact that you know, Moses and Aaron are feared and revered you know, and so there's, they're going to have open access because, you know, they're kind of like VIPs now, you know, and not, not in the sense that Egypt's, the Egyptians like them. But, you know, because of what is happening to Egypt, they see the, the power and, you know, position, if you will, and, uh, of, of Moses and Aaron. And so, yeah, they're, they're probably going to have a VIP pass. They're going to have open access. So maybe they're a little bit afraid of them, you know, even before coming up and maybe deep down inside they were just trembling a little bit well so hold that thought because when we get to um i I think it's the eighth plague account yeah where we're going to see out chapter 10 verse 7 we're going to see pharaoh's servants you know react that way in other words moses comes in makes an announcement turns around and goes out and pharaoh's servants say whoa 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 and they plead with Pharaoh and they say, please get him back in here because we have got to, you know, listen to what he says. And, you know, this is stuff's getting bad. You know, and the whole idea is that there's there there is that kind of almost fear when Moses shows up that they're like, oh, boy, you know, what's next? Right. And, and absolutely. There's like a, a respect factor, fear factor going on there. Dana. <laughs> I defer. Something almost the opposite of, um, of God hardening anyone's heart. Isn't there some place in the New Testament where he talks about he virtually takes a life so that the person can make it to heaven? I can't, I can't quite bring the, the concept to mind. But it's, it's like he takes a life so that they don't get a hard heart. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so there's the yeah, there's two passages that uh, at least you just mentioned Second Corinthians five, so it's it's a it's the church discipline passage, where it's talking about a guy uh, who is he claims to be a believer but he's living in, in gross sin, unrepentant. So it's basically church discipline: kick him out of the church, treat him like an unbeliever. He says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and. There's, there's a lot of debate on what that passage, but I think you're right. I think that's probably what it's referring to. He says, hey, you want to act like an unbeliever? Then go ahead and be an unbeliever. You know, welcome to the realm of Satan. And the idea is that you know, for the destruction of his flesh being either the idea that you know, Satan is just going to have his way with him or God is also allowing that for the, the sake of a premature death. In other words, it's a sense, in, in a sense, if he's a true believer, this is where people couple it with 1 John 5, the idea of the sin unto death, that there's, uh, that may, be, may well be what's happening there, is that God in his grace actually allows a premature death before they go on in further sinfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's probably an Old Testament example of that. Um, it's the son of King Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14. So there's, uh, I think it's 14, 13, 14, 15 is the, the life of Jeroboam. And he's the king of the north. And right when you have the civil war split. But then God actually, remember his son falls sick. 
Jeroboam's son falls sick, so Jeroboam sends his wife to Ahiah the prophet, and the wife shows up, and uh, she's disguised. Remember this? Um, You know, it's kind of a cool story, but Ahiah sees, you know, right through her disguise, knows who she is, but then says, you know, she says, well, is my son going to make it or not? And the prophet says, no, the son's going to die. He says, because God has found good in him, and God's going to spare him from what's going to happen to the house of Jeroboam. Because God had just predicted that the entire house of Jeroboam, meaning, you know, men, women, children, they, you know, they're going to be wiped out. Uh, you know, God's going to allow this destruction to befall the house. But he says, I'm going to let, let that child die, you know, just through sickness as a mercy for him. So he doesn't have to go through all the terror that the rest of the household's going to fall through. And you're like, whoa, like, well, I mean, what a picture that is. You know, but you're right. I think God does do that at times where it's a, it's a mercy that they die prematurely. What's that? He had no mercy on Pharaoh. That's right, but not in this case. That's right. He was setting up Pharaoh for he was grandstanding this situation. Thank you. Absolutely. I was just kind of going back to the symbology of the ash. You know, when you think about, I was just reading where um, ash can kind of symbolize death or repentance and how he, you know, they go through showing an aid, how he spread it toward the heavens. Everybody knows if he throws something up, it comes down. Mm-hmm. You know, showing that death and repentance was going to come from above, the training down. And I, and I think symbology-wise, I'm thinking about those magicians who were, in the early plagues, were sort of, um, you know, important in thwarting off the early ones, and now they can't even stand. And I was wondering, maybe they just couldn't stand still because they were just kind of wiggly and itchy, and they decided not to have them at all. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a vivid mental image, right? right? Yeah, they can't stand still, right? It's just... <laughs> Oh, that's absolutely true. And I think that's an interesting thought, tying ashes to repentance, right? I mean, to repent in sackcloth and ashes. Exactly, exactly. But this is something where it's like they're not repent. They're not doing that voluntarily, right? They're not, but God says, okay, so I'm going to put ash on you. So it's a picture of destruction and, you know, judgment rather than repentance. That's, that's a powerful thought. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That's good. Gloria. So I, let me just double check that. It might be First Corinthians. I think it's uh, it's First. Let me just double check. I think it's I think it's First Corinthians five 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 five. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, connect that is probably. I mean, some will. Yeah, that his. Oh, thank you. There it is. I didn't quote the end of the verse. So he says, verse in five five, to deliver such a one into Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Right, and that's the idea is that if he's a true believer, right, then his spirit will be saved. But it's like the destruction of his flesh being probably a premature death will actually be an act of mercy, lest he go on in great you know to greater degrees of of wickedness and evil. Yes, sir. I'm getting a picture of Pharaoh as being an object lesson. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh was addicted to sin, addicted to rebellion against God, and the consequence for that was not only he became self-destructive, not making wise decisions for himself, but for his family, uh, for his country, for the people around him, and it's almost like that's an object lesson because 
just like the drug addict, brother addict, yeah. uh, does all these destructive behaviors, which you, on the outside, are saying, doesn't make sense for him yeah. to do it. And he keeps doing it, he keeps doing it, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and that's what's happening to Pharaoh. That's so right. sin is a totally destructive thing internally for the person, but it also affects everyone around him. That's right. Because he loses the ability to make wise choices and good decisions. That's right. And that's where the hurt comes from. That's right. No, that's excellent. Everybody hear that? That's good. That's a good, because uh, he is absolutely right. Pharaoh's a, you know, a, an object lesson in a, of a horrible example right, of what sin can do. And I like your, absolutely, sin is destructive. And, but it, not just to the individual. I mean, look at the nation of Egypt that's being pulled down as a result of this, right? Family, nation, everything's being impacted. Uh, yeah, exactly right. But that's the ramifications of sin, right? Sin is, it has ripple effects that go beyond what sometimes we can see or even imagine, you know, <clears throat> which in reverse, and then we can, you know, we can end with this thought. But in, rever- in reverse, that's a powerful thought. When you think about the effect of sin, I mean, I'd love to do a lecture on it sometime. I'm, I'm collecting a group of notes on uh, this idea of the web of sin, you know, the, the ripple effect of sin, and how devastating and destructive it is. And really, studying Levitical system is, is, in my mind, one of the greatest ways to illustrate it, is just look at what it took for someone to approach God. Look at all the steps they had to go through to remedy the sin problem in order to approach God. That's, you know, that's kind of the premise of, of seeing how destructive and pervasive and the tentacles of sin that just go everywhere impact everything. But then you think about that in reverse and you think about the power of redemption and what Christ did for us and how he overcomes sin. It all the more, in other words, you don't appreciate redemption as much as you should until we see what we're redeemed from. The power and destruction of sin that needs to be dealt with and reversed and overcome. You know, and then it's all, it's just adding like a, a whole new dimension to the depth of what Christ did for us. That's a powerful thought. It's good. Carl. It doesn't actually say it as far as I could find, but like Judas Iscariot. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, he'd already, in Matthew, it says he's already agreed to betray Jesus, and then still he asked Jesus, you know, right at the end, is it I? Right. That's right. And Jesus says, it is a, yeah, but I mean. No, that's exactly right. I think he's, yeah, you can add him to the list of another example of like a pharaoh, a self-destructive, you know, sucked into this selfishness and sin that just takes him over. And it leads to absolute chaos, you know, not in his life, but in the lives of those around him. Absolutely. All right, so next week I'm going to try. Oh, you got a hand? Go ahead. We'll end with you. I don't know my church history well enough, but the Corinthians quote, I was just wondering, like, turning them over to the destruction of the flesh. Like in Acts, the church had everything in common because they were being persecuted so badly. Mm-hmm. So to be pushed out of the fellowship, would that mean that it would be hard to survive in the Corinthian world? I don't know. 
Well, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think in some situations that would absolutely be the case. In Corinth, they, as far as we know, at this point, they weren't undergoing the persecution. In fact, they were kind of high on the hog, you know, fat and sassy, and, you know, which was leading to so much perversion and rebellion in the church. Um, but, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's a conceivable scenario, absolutely, where it's going to be difficult to survive. I think in this particular situation, it's even just a spiritual dynamic at work that God has probably what's going on is God will actually lead this person to a premature death. You know, because of their, if they go on in their rebellion. This is, in other words, the sin unto death that, you know, First John talks about. I guess that's confusing to me, though, because a premature death would seem to solidify going to hell because it says that, like, adultery won't inherit the kingdom of God. It seems to me to be more like a cast him out so that his flesh suffers so that he'll repent. Oh, absolutely, because that's part of it, right? I mean, they're, the suffering is meant to bring them, lead them to the repentance. But if they don't, right, it's kind of a, and, and, and that's, but that's probably what the second half of the verse is getting at when he says that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, if they're a genuine believer, right, the, fr- the flesh will be destroyed, but the spirit will be saved. Yeah. Yes. That's good. No, this, that's. Uh, I encourage you to do that. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, prepping for our Proverbs class. I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in Proverbs, but there's so many Proverbs that you can see fleshed out in, in this, you know, narrative in the Book of Exodus, and I mean, all over the Bible. But, but that's a, that's a good one. Turn on the TV, you can see lots of Proverbs. No kidding. Just read the newspaper and read Proverbs. And just, (laughs) right, right. Oh, there's a fool. Oh, there's a fool. No, I'm sorry. No. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. That's a proverb right there. It's true. It's true. Ouch. <laughs> right? Moral of the story. Read Proverbs and live by it. Right? It will save you a lot of heartache. Oh. All right. Let's close in prayer. And then next time, I'll, I'll work this week. I don't know why my program quit on me, but we'll try and get it working better for next time. And we'll, uh, we'll jump into the seventh plague. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time tonight. Thank you, Lord, for these moments that we can... Read your word, contemplate its meaning, not only to that time, place, original culture and audience, but Lord, by implication, us, how we can look at Pharaoh, as was mentioned, and we can see how he is an object lesson of the destructiveness of sin, not only in our own life or a personal life, but in how it impacts all around us, family, friends, even our country, our nation. Lord, how we look at this alluring power of sin, the web and the tentacles of of sin, and yet in reverse, we we begin to adore you and your redemptive power and, and what you did to deliver us from this sin. Lord, we, we just stand in awe of the God that you are. We ask that, Lord, you would again give us grace and mercy as we live our life day in and day out, as we attempt to honor you, our living and our thinking. 
We pray, Lord, for our future studies that you would continue to guide and direct and illumine our hearts and our minds and lead us, uh, Lord, to, to greater degrees of faithfulness, all for your glory. So we once again commit the night to you. We ask your blessing upon it in Christ's name. Amen.